0: Welcome to the Glasgow Girls Club podcast, where we chat to inspirational folks throughout the city about living their best lives and encourage our listeners to grow and glow.
1: This podcast is sponsored by the Corinthian. The Corinthian has revolutionised Glasgow's meeting, eating, socialising and gaming scene, boasting 14 rooms spaced across five floors. This unique venue is the only one of its kind to offer a range of fantastic space, including bars, club, brasserie, meeting rooms, private dining rooms, as well as a stunning gaming room all under one roof. Preserving much of the 260-year-old Grady-listed building, a former bank and high court in Merchant City, it is definitely worth a see. And if you're a member of the GGC Web Club, you can now flash your keyring in the Corinthian Brasserie to receive 20% off the a la carte menu. Hello and welcome to the GGC Podcast. My name is Laura McGuinness and every week I'm out about in the city interviewing some inspirational folks for you all. In this week's podcast, I catch up with Lucy Bradley, a consultant medical herbalist with an amazing life story to tell. During our chat, we hear of Lucy's journey into herbalism, from living and working in Africa to becoming a mum, navigating through tough times to becoming a super successful entrepreneur and settling in Glasgow. I didn't want to edit a single element of this wonderful, expert and interesting woman's journey. So without further ado, over to Lucy. So hello Lucy. Hi Laura. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Yeah, pleasure. I've been really looking forward to this podcast because I know you've got so much amazing knowledge (laughs) and I'm just looking to extract all of it on this podcast. So let's start from the top. Let's hear about your story and then let's chat about your amazing business okay
0: so i'm lucy and um i guess it's interesting when you look back at your life isn't it and it's only with, really with retrospects that you start to see the picture putting itself together as yep. to where you're at now, like how you got to the point that you're at and a few years ago um to 2016 actually I did a coaching course and we had to state what our purpose was okay you know we had to it was kind of when I started really getting interested in business as an entrepreneur and we had to look back at our life story and see how had we got to this point. Yep. And so I can really look back through my life and see that plants and nature have been such an integral part of my life from such a young age. But unconsciously okay. I didn't I didn't twig until I did that like life story looking back and um so things that really stand out for me like my grandma my yep. paternal grandma we used to spend a lot of time with her okay and her house was like chaos total tip and she had a conservatory on the side of her house okay and her conservatory was basically like a jungle like it was just so Uh, randly it must have been so dirty (laughs) like (laughs) cobwebs everywhere you know I can even still smell the smell of it okay it's so embedded in my memory and we spent me and my two sisters like we spent so much happy time there okay and I think that that was like something from being young That I just really loved like it must have met with something in me that just made me happy my mum and dad were running a business they were very stressed you know they had a lot of pressure on them it was in the 80s yeah you know they had financial pressures they had family pressures you know it wasn't easy for them and so our home life was a bit you know a bit up and down okay so my grandma was like the place that we would go to, like, like your sanctuary, a sanctuary, yeah. and it was that conservatory. And she grew loads of geraniums. Okay. And uh, like when I smell them now, I just get all these feelings. So my grandma was about food and play and safety. And my grandma was a really big lady. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> she was really cuddly. Yeah. Like you know, she was big, and like. The comfort from her body, you know, yeah. was something that was really important to us because she used to like, we used to sit all squashed up with her, with the dogs, you know, she had three big dogs <laughs> and like that feeling of being together and being safe, yeah. you know, with my grandma and with the dogs and the plants, like it's just, it, I think it was something very fundamental to me. <clears throat> yeah. And then as I grew, grew older, mm-hmm. when I was seven, I got a dog of my own. And life at home was still a bit intense and I would always take the dog out, like walking the dog. Like I didn't know what else to do. I obviously couldn't be like, screw you to my parents, (laughs) but I would get relief by walking the dog. And we lived on an estuary, I'm from Lancashire, and we lived on an estuary and I used to walk by the river all the time. And nature, the trees and the water and the dog like that always was something that I went to so even at a young age like I was looking for therapy and respite yep. using nature okay you know that I really loved that because that thing in me drove me forward yeah you know that I had something to go to I had a mechanism of coping and it was nature and I just always loved nature that that was the thing we had horses I very lucky that we my mum and dad got us horses. So from being about thirteen yeah, from from high school basically, me and my sister were just constantly at the stables. We'd get you know, is it was at the time where you could just drop your kids off? And yes like no one cared
1: <laughs> yeah but I know a good time so yeah, yeah. like oh, how do so you think about every it every
0: day after school we would be dropped off at the stables and then we'd be picked up later you know and I just loved being with the horses and yeah. riding and riding out and being in the fresh air and nature and I guess that kind of informed a lot I chose to study zoology at university okay which is like the study of animals and environments and although I didn't um I didn't particularly enjoy university the first time around like the content was what I liked okay but then I also had a few other experiences one of the most pivotal ones that stands out was at 18 I went on a gap year to new zealand okay and I remember being in the interview in manchester and I said to the guy just send me to like the most extreme place that you've got like okay, okay. the most challenging the most you know just like just whatever just, yeah I'm ready just for challenge it challenge me you know, yeah okay pretty just like I'm gonna do it <laughs> you know I'm the youngest of three daughters and you know we never we were always raised to believe that we could do anything good there was no <coughs> you can't do that because you're a girl yeah you can't you know your brother's this your sister's that it just wasn't like that we, we were just really entitled. My parents were just, you know, it was the 80s as well. So it was yeah. like the height of capitalism and the height of money making. Yeah. And the height of consumerism. And it was just like, get it, get it, get it, get it.
1: Just do it, yeah. yeah. Okay. And so
0: I think that, that I really got that and I went to a very competitive school. And so we were brought up just to be like, if you want it, you go get it. Okay. And I was really feisty when I was younger. My mum <laughs> said I was born breach. And because I was born breach, like, I just had to do it my own way.
1: Yeah, you were a fighter yeah, from the beginning. I decided yeah.
0: I'm doing it. Yes, this is the way it's happening <laughs> and yeah. that's it. And so when I was 18, I went to New Zealand and they put me in a Maori boarding school. And a Maori are like the yes. indigenous people of New Zealand. Yeah. And it was in the middle of nowhere. Okay. Whereabouts and in New Zealand? It was in Hawkes Bay, so the North Island, okay. so the east coast of the North, yeah. North Island, and there's a very strong culture and population of Maori people in that area. Okay. and it was life changing because we would they were very focused on culture. Yep, because the Maori people were basically prevented it was illegal for them to speak their language, it was illegal for them to have their traditional practices, you know, the colon colonization. Shocking. You know, to the nth degree. Yeah. And this school was the oldest Maori boarding school in New Zealand. A lot of like the famous rugby players went there. Okay. Like the all blacks rugby players yeah. went to um it's called Te Aote uh, boarding school and they went there and it was about like discipline and owning yourself and knowing who you are okay. and your spiritual practice and what's interesting about the Maori is that they have a very strong connection with the land Yep. so land land and nature is an integral part they of have food such they are. respect for it don't they yeah yeah and so there's me 18 years old you know in the middle of nowhere with all these Maori people like oh my god (laughs) yeah you're
1: like they are really that (laughs) challenging
0: but it was so incredible because everything they talked about how they were as people their value system how they treated their elders with respect like how they tried to resolve problems in the communities like everything that they said just made so much sense to me even though i'd never experienced anything like that i was just like well yeah and we did loads of time in the bush. Like, they would take the kids out on, like, 10-day hikes, okay. foot hikes. They would eat wild pigs. They would hunt and eat wild pigs. Okay. We would drink from the streams. We went to... Uh, Murai is, like, the community house. They'd be singing these songs. Like, I'd have goosebumps all over my body. You know, it just... What an experience. I was just, like well wow <laughs> yeah, yeah and still now you know 20 years later I still feel that you know like if I watch like someone doing hacker uh-huh. you know I, st- I felt something you feel the in me. yeah yeah and so that was really pivotal because I experienced something very different from what I was used to mm-hmm. you know and I think that that was important important exposure because it opened my mind and I started to think there is something other than what I've always known out there and the cultural aspect of it just I just really loved that it it, and you know they use plant medicines but more than that it was like the connection to the land like how much they valued the land and how sacred that was and also that how important that was to their health
1: yeah not
0: just that it's important to their value system but that how how the land was and their connection with the land was part and parcel of their health okay so their health wasn't about their individual health or their individual problems it was about the collectiveness of everybody okay. like how is everybody if one person is suffering then we all suffer okay and they talked about mental health yeah. a lot you know because that's like their spiritual health yeah and they you know and that was like the first kind of time that I'd really been in a system where everything was considered their whole selves were considered okay so they didn't yeah so yeah. they didn't look to solve problems just by fixing it
1: mm-hmm. it would
0: be a, you know they would contemplate it there would be discussions it would be about communication it would yeah. be about being together and they'd always be focused on resolution because that's what ultimately was better for everybody yep you know so it was from like the, being brought up in a very competitive individualistic you know environment to then being like well you are not that important we've got to look at everybody and consider everything and we've got to find a solution for everybody and that was just like I mean my little brain at that time must have just been like what the heck (laughs) yeah this is so different from (laughs) what you'd been used to and had learned yourself yeah So then, so I think that's probably why I found university so hard the first time around, because I'd just been in this amazing environment with people that I really resonated with. And then 19, I came back and went to university and just felt really disconnected and Mm -hmm. was like, oh. I just want to go back there. Yeah, just want to go back But it was cool because also what that did for me was that it made me realise that my own health was important and that I could, like I started to consider myself and what was going on for me. And I'd had like an underlying health problem from being about 16 and I kept getting antibiotics for it and you know it wasn't it wasn't really you know it just kept going round and round when I went to university at 20 I remember the day that I went to the doctor's surgery again for another prescription and coming out of the doctor's surgery and just saying this is not good enough yeah this is not working I don't want this this cannot be the only solution yeah and so i don't remember how it happened but i started seeing a massage therapist mm-hmm. and it was the first time that i'd had a massage non-sexual touch yeah and it something like exploded in my brain okay. and i was just like this is it yeah okay. <laughs> this is this is the way forward for me at that time and I started kind of on my, on my own healing journey my own health journey it sounds very cliched saying my own healing journey but it is it is what it is yeah and started getting loads of massage i started considering my mental health and like the stress that i'd experienced as a child okay. and how that impacted on my current health yeah i started thinking about what i was eating and how that effect was affecting my health yeah started experimenting more with food i was vegetarian already but i started looking at like veganism and just like organic food or just considering other stuff yeah as well and the massage therapist that i was seeing was an aromatherapist okay. as well so she used essential oils and so that really got me into plants because I then was like, Oh, I love these. Yes. So I started buying essential oils and started using them on myself. I mean, I just used a book. Like I just bought a book. Yeah. And was like, okay. Yeah, you need taught yourself. <laughs> yeah. You? And funnily enough, like at that time there was a Neil Yard Remedies in Leeds. I went to university in Leeds and there was a Neils Yard Remedies there, which is who I rent my clinic space from now okay and I knew that they were a really good quality supplier so yep. I knew in my mind that quality was important yep. and so I started using their oils and then I started to think okay essential oils are very concentrated you know I'm not sure about that so then I started looking at just plants and herbs yep. and getting more into that and I bought a book um called andrew chevalier's encyclopedia of medicinal plants it's a massive whopping great big book you remember borders Yes. yeah so i went into borders and i just bought this book okay and i just like looked up what i had and i just started buying the plants and using them on myself okay and i was just treating myself and i but i was getting so into it i was so fascinated by it that I started getting like little bits of therapy as well, like uh, psych- psycho-emotional therapy as well, because I could see that there was a link between my mental health, even though I didn't really know what mental health was at that point. Yep. I knew that was something with my mind yep. and my body together <laughs> okay. that were influencing what was going on for me, because had it only been a physical problem, when I took the medication from the doctor, then it should have got better. Yeah. That's common sense. Yeah, and
1: it shouldn't have really recurred, you know, or... It,
0: yeah, yeah, and it shouldn't have recurred. But yeah. I knew that there was like a stress element or mm. an anxiety element inside of that yeah. that was affecting my health. And so I just started looking at things a bit broader. And I finished university um, in the final summer The final summer of university, before I started my third year, I broke up with a boyfriend who was in a long-term relationship from being 16, and we broke up, and I was gutted, like, as you are. Of course, I mean, that's a long time. Yeah, 21 years old, 16 to 21, and he was, like, really important to me because he also helped me a lot deal with the stress of my family, so he was, like, a real sanctuary for me. Yeah. But we we were just going in different directions. Yep. So he ended and my sister had said to me the year before she'd been out to an organic farm in California. And she said to me, listen, why don't you just go to California for a few months and yep. just have some time? And I was like, OK, I think my mum had said, we'll pay for you to go. Yeah. So I went to this organic farm and going to California, was South California, so it's south of San Diego. So it's really close to the border of Mexico. Yeah and the organic farm they were doing like an organic veg box scheme
1: okay
0: they were working at farmers markets and they were delivering to really really high quality restaurants like you know now we kind of know that that restaurants want really good quality locally especially in glasgow like we have that real great tradition don't we of locally sourced food high quality small suppliers and that's what was going on in california at that time and it just opened my eyes like I was working at farmers markets and the people that I was meeting I mean it was not you know they were proper other end of the spectrum to okay. us you know what Californians are yes. like anyway yeah and you know they're like I have colonic irrigation I didn't even know what that, what that
1: was <laughs> yeah, okay do you
0: want some beetroot
1: <laughs> but, yeah, <laughs> you
0: know, but the the thing about that was that it was another eye-opening experience it was a it was an experience of a totally different culture and way of being that I you know it was serendipity it was like fate that I needed that exposure to realize that there was something other out there yeah as to and it kind of compounded the path that I was already on because I was already looking at my personal health and I was going more natural and I was incorporating my mental health as well as my physical health and the people who owned the farm never, ever saw doctors. Um, They can't remember the last time they'd been to a doctor. Of course, in the States, you have to pay. Yes. Right? Yeah. So there's a much stronger movement of natural medicine because yes. you have to pay for both. Okay. So there's no... You have to choose one or the other. So yeah. lots of people choose natural because it's the same price. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So they these guys a uh, husband and wife they basically took care of their own health like they knew what they needed yep. they nude need, you know self-care yep. they meditated they were part of like a spiritual practice that really served them well they were connected with a great group of people in a community that supported them and helped them to grow you know personally and business wise yep. and I was just like I couldn't believe they had autonomy over their health. Yeah, I'd never seen that before. Yeah, and you know, if I was sick, like if I had a cold or I wasn't feeling well, they'd just be like, "Oh, here you go, take this." Okay, and I'd be like,
1: "You'd be like, what is
0: this?" <laughs> like, oh, well, I was just like, "Okay, great," but that was really inspiring because that was. That sense of autonomy, like the Maori people had, like that's what they were focusing on having autonomy and control over their bodies, not just the lands, but their bodies, the people that they were hanging out with. Yeah. So I came back to the UK, finished my degree, (laughs) was like, I'm not going to do that. I really wanted to go to Africa. Okay. I had a big thing about Serengeti, um, Serengeti ecosystems, which is in Tanzania, big cats. And I remember saying to my dad, I'm going to go to Africa. And my dad said, over my dead body, are you going to Africa? (laughs) Fair enough, (laughs) right? Fair enough, he's my dad.
1: Yeah.
0: So I was like, and at that time, like in order to get into zoology, it it was really necessary for you to do an internship, a paid internship, or to start a PhD, neither of which I really wanted to do. I just was like, No, I'm not not sure that that's for me. I was at the time, I worked all through university and I was doing caring for people with disabilities. The University of Leeds had an amazing disability unit. They were very, very progressive in terms of uh, equality and inclusivity. So I always worked providing care. So that was another thing that I was caring for people, had this thing about wanting to care for people. And I decided that in the summer when I finished, I was working for a guy who was a wheelchair user. He was a quadriplegic. And I just worked for him a lot yeah. and just wanted to save money and was doing a bit of traveling. And then just one day, I realized that you could be a herbalist as a job. Okay. It was like a total light bulb moment of like,
1: Oh, this is a a career. This this is a career, yeah, Yeah,
0: exactly. I just hadn't thought about that. Funnily enough, I had seen a herbalist in Leeds and I was just like so appalled. I was just like, no. But it was basically what they were doing was that they were using herbs instead of using chemicals. Okay. So in the same way, they were just trying to plaster the problem and I was just like, but it's not sorting it out. It's not enough. Like I want to get really down into it like what is the root of this problem yeah and um yeah so when I realized that you could be a herbalist as a career I literally just
1: googled it as we all it's the start of all great things isn't it google
0: (laughs) I can't even remember if it was google then or not but the first thing that came up was like a bsc a degree course to train to be a professional medical herbalist. Okay. And the course was here in Glasgow. And okay, I just, great. I literally filled in the form there and then and didn't tell anybody. And I just thought, I'll just wait and hear, And they emailed me back to say, yes, we'd like to interview you. and I was just like, oh my word, what have I done? But I guess this is the way forward. And when I eventually, I was really like, this is it, this is. And the reason that I wanted to do that was because I wanted to be able to look after my family and friends yep. in the future. Like, I wanted to be able to... I thought, like, if I had kids and they were sick, like, what would I be able to do as a mum? And yes. I found it really daunting that I wouldn't know what to do. Okay. And so... And helping my family as well. So I just decided to sign up and do it. I never intended to be a clinical practitioner. I didn't okay. I couldn't see myself in clinic. But, I mean... I don't know, what else do you do? So I did it. And when I told my mum and dad, (laughs) they were like, you're going to be a witch. (laughs) Like, my mum and dad were genuinely heartbroken and mortified. You know, they'd, like, spent all this money paying for my education and all these great experiences. And I was like, they were like, and now you're going to be a witch. And I was like, I hope not. I don't want to be a witch. (laughs) i want to be a herbalist (laughs) oh that's brilliant (laughs) so but with time like that was a four-year degree course and it was extremely intense i was living in leeds for the first year and traveling up and down we did one every third weekend okay we did three three full days of training and after the first year i was kind of like I felt like I was living a dual life. Yeah, no wonder. Yeah, and because I was getting so into the herbal stuff, you know, when I'd come back to Leeds, people would be like, "Oh, here she goes again." You know, all the herb chat. Yeah, just people get fed up of it, don't they? (laughs) (laughs) Understandably, people get fed up of everything. No, if you've got a real passion passion for something, something, then. So I just decided to move up to Glasgow. And so I spent my, yeah, I spent three years living in Glasgow and doing my herbal medicine training. Okay. So that was 2008 that I qualified. Yeah. Finally finished my degree Very and good. got my professional qualification. And in the last year of my degree course, I really had had enough of living in Glasgow. I was living in the West End. Yep it was just like all too much, you know, city life, too much partying, yep. like too much, you know, I just had had enough. So I had like this mad idea that I would go and live in a community in okay. my final year. And so I went and lived in uh, what's called the Camp Hill community. Okay. And the Camp Hill community was created by Rudolf Steiner. And Steiner was a German philosopher and okay. poet and writer and artist and he created these communities for people with special needs right and it was an integrated community so you lived in a family so no one was any different everybody was treated the same yeah everybody had to work everybody had to everybody was equal and that was really different because obviously we know that like people with special needs are often cared for yes. because they have different needs yeah but there's something about, like, that can be a little bit infantilizing mm-hmm. for people, right? So Steiner in these Camp Hill communities, which is a global network of communities, was really radical because it was like, well, even if you have special needs, you're still able to do stuff. Yeah. So that they would be given work according to what they could and couldn't do. So that makes them feel val- valuable. Exactly. Yep. They're just part and parcel of... Same as everyone else. Same as everyone else. Yep. I mean... You know, we we all have strengths and weaknesses, don't oh, we? Absolutely. So it was just about doing Edinburgh that. Yeah. And that was in, an incredible experience so for me. It's in Edinburgh. Okay. It's in a place called Collington, so it's just yeah, on the outskirts, and it's still there. It's called the community's called Tippereth. Right. And it's a wonderful community. So they provide day services mm-hmm. as well as residential services. And so I was there in my final year and the people that I lived with, they're called your house house parents because, okay. you know, you have, it's like a heteronormative uh, nuclear model of yes. mum and dad and then the kids, yes. basically. So I went and lived with Vic and Andy and they were just great because I obviously had different circumstances from a lot of people because I was finishing a degree. Yeah. And they were just super supportive. And they would, they, you know, I would still work because you had to work in the community.
1: That was like your payment That's for That's your there. payment
0: for being there. Yeah. You got housing. Yeah. You got paid a little bit of money. I mean, next to nothing, but so you had a bit of spare cash. Yeah. I was much older than most of the people there because a lot of the volunteers were 18, okay. 18, 19, and from Germany or from continental Europe. And Vic and Andy were just like, you know, don't worry when I needed time to study they would leave me to it when I needed time off for exams they left me to it you know and it was a wonderful experience because I experienced it it goes back again doesn't it to like the Maori experience that I wanted to be in community yes okay there was something in me that wanted that yeah and so that really helped me and uh yeah, I was living there with them. And basically, when I finished my degree, they moved out of the community. and They were like, You just have to come with us. <laughs> You're not allowed to leave us. And I was like, uh, Okay. So I lived in a caravan in their garden. <laughs> I lived in a caravan in their garden. I was living in a van for a little bit and then I lived in a caravan, bought a caravan, and lived in a caravan in their garden. And because when I finished my herbal studies, you know, you've gone through four years, years of hell. <laughs> I mean, it, you know, people used to jokingly say, like, it's like warrior training. I mean, it really took you to the edge of your existence. Okay. You know, you were working, you were studying full time. Yeah. You were being forced in to look at yourself. You were like, you had to address your health problems. Yeah. You, ha- you just there was no escape from the intensity of it which is good yes because it put me in good stead for being a practitioner right and the school that I went to the Scottish School of Herbal Medicine is no longer here unfortunately they closed down but the school was very special because We didn't just do, you know, we had to do pathophysiology, and anatomy and physiology, differential diagnosis, clinical diagnostics, clinical skills, all of these academic stuff. But we did loads of traditional medicine. So we learned about Ayurveda. We learned about traditional Chinese medicine. We learned about acupuncture. We learned about Galenic medicine. We learned about Native American Indian medicine. We just, they exposed us to so much stuff. Yeah that was so out there you know the school was run by like a proper pair of hippies but they were very focused yes you know so that was amazing because we did loads of energetics we tasted more than 250 different plants so we didn't learn about plants by reading about them in books yeah we had to taste them and experience them ourselves right so that was no one else was trained in that way that they had that real embodied experience of the plants yeah plus clinical training so after all of that you know blood sweat and tears for four years I was like I'm gonna have to be a practitioner
1: yeah (laughs) Yeah, there's no choice yeah I have
0: to do it and also the school at the school we had to do massage training as well so in our first year we had to do Swedish massage, eye tech qualifications. So we, ha- we had a bodywork qualification. And the idea was that you could make money from being a therapist while you were still training. Okay. So it was like um, an apprenticeship, yeah. you know, so that you were getting used to being in clinic, managing your books, scheduling, dealing with people, all of that stuff. So we did. So I first qualified as a massage therapist 2013. And then 2015 we did an aromatherapy qualification as well. So we're also clinical aromatherapists. Yeah. So we came out with a herbal medicine degree, ah, uh, a diploma in uh, aromatherapy, and uh, a qualification in massage That's therapy amazing. as well. So it was very holistic. Absolutely. You know, so it was cool because when I decided to be in practice so I started working at Neil's yard remedies in Edinburgh and I worked as a massage therapist Okay. I didn't feel particularly confident about being a herbalist because it's you you get you just feel very responsible okay. you know? being a herbalist is a lot of responsibility and it was a little bit overwhelming for me at that time yeah. you know because people would be coming with very complex health problems yes. and I'd be like oh um,
1: yeah oh
0: my word you had to build
1: up your confidence yeah yeah.
0: but the massage was very easy for me it was very natural I loved massage I still do body work now it's really hard for me not to do it because I love working with people's bodies and I've got a natural talent for it it works for me and so I started doing that and uh and then by chance I ended up going to Tanzania to teach first aid I was at a health fair and these people kind of coerced me into (laughs) doing that and that sent me on a different trajectory because when I was in Tanzania because I was a qualified herbalist I already had like a very different view on life yeah and the health problems within the school that I was teaching in were like so damaging to people they it wasn't just malaria it was typhoid cholera anemia poor water supply so i could see how environment and health were linked of course and i just got this obsessiveness about (laughs) health specifically in africa and just i just like I guess I felt a strong sense of injustice too because I yeah. knew about colonialism because of being in New Zealand yeah you see how it's all linking There's together absolute, oh, right? is, it's, it's a,
1: such a good story it's a
0: clear light, it? Really isn't is. you know and I felt really passionate and the injustice about how colonialism had damaged not only the land but people's health and yeah. sense of autonomy like the colonialists not only stole lands, they stole identity, yep. you know, and cultural identity and identity of health. And it, it's so entangled, it's so complex. And I could see that, and I was like, I know that natural medicine could help because it takes into consideration everything. Yes. And so I got in touch with a few people that I studied with, and they said to me, well, do you know what? One of our colleagues for her dissertation did a plant called Artemisia annua and its positive uses with malaria. Okay. I was like, what's the chance of that? Wow. Yeah. So I contacted this lady, Jenny, explained the situation that I'd been in Tanzania, that I was interested in getting involved in natural medicine in East Africa. And she said, I lived in Tanzania for 25 years as a missionary nurse. And I... (laughs) It's like, oh,
1: cool. Oh, wow.
0: And she introduced me to this other organization called Animed Action for Natural Medicine, who are an organization based in Germany, a charity. And they work in Africa doing sustainable health care. Okay. So it's looking at food, water, land and medicine. Yeah. She introduced me to them and I was just like, this is it. Great. And she said, oh, I'm going to introduce you to loads of people in East Africa. Just just email them, just write them yeah. and they'll get back to you and they'd love to see you, they'd love to meet you. And I was just like, right! Oh,
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> so I was back in the UK. I'd already like, planned that I wanted to do a research trip back to Tanzania to kind of find out more yep. and find out what was going on. You know, the cool thing is, is that I had two science degrees Right, so I was very well trained in research and science, so that held me in really good stead in terms of having a discipline like a scientific discipline, but also being trained as a herbalist. So it's really well balanced, you know, between the two. So I messaged, emailed all these people in East Africa, and they're like, "We'd love to meet you," and they ranged from pastors to doctors to surgeons, to community workers, to horticulturalists. And I spent eight weeks in East Africa by myself just travelling around and meeting all these people, wow. doing this incredible community work yep. with plants at the centre. So they were growing plants. So what they did was that they took it upon themselves to find solutions. Yes, they didn't rely on oxfam or water aid or any of the big organizations they were like that is not the solution the solution is at the level of the community it's a grass it has to be a grassroots organization and the community has to be invested in it it has to be initiated by the community so there's no white people involved yeah just all africans doing it for themselves and so they were growing medicinal plants so they knew how to grow specific medicinal plants they knew how to harvest them and process them into medicine yeah they were also generating income out of selling medicines so they had like these small businesses how cool is that so cool that they just they were sustaining themselves through growing plants and selling them they were also making natural soaps as well so that's an income generating business yeah and just like this real what I really loved about being in Africa was people's entrepreneurship okay local thinker yeah you know that they're, they're screwed they don't have anything and so out of having nothing they're like well what can we do Yeah. and so they were just very very innovative people yeah and it was so eye-opening you know I was 20 I was 28 and it just was so eye-opening because people were just doing it for themselves and taking control and they were having health clinics integrated health clinics so there was doctors and nurses working with natural medicines hospitals hospitals that had medicinal plant gardens okay because the thing is is that in Tanzania as with a lot of African countries they have no budgets yeah the hospitals and the practices have and the clinics have no No budgets budgets. so they can't afford even to buy medicines and local people can't afford to buy medicines and if they buy medicines they're very expensive yeah so either they'd They'd buy it, but they'd use half the dose so okay. that it would last longer, right, okay. so their disease wouldn't get better because they weren't taking the full course of treatments, or they'd buy drugs from China, which yeah. are a poorer quality, so okay. they wouldn't get better. Okay. And so what Clinics, medical clinics, a lot of doctors and nurses and hospitals were doing was that they would grow medicinal plants in gardens because the plants would grow so easily. They'd harvest rainwater, so they'd put gutters on the roofs to harvest rainwater so that they had a source of water for the gardens. Yeah. Cool, right? right. No water, what we do, harvest the rain. Yeah. Um, and they were practising permaculture, principles so like conservation gardening principles and they'd have these medicines that they could use which were significantly cost significantly less and so people could have better outcomes in terms of their health yeah they'd talk to them about nutrition as well like growing healthier food eating fruits yeah. all of these things how to clean water and it was just like it was such an incredible time of my life because I was so privileged because I was a medical herbalist you know but people were just I learned by experience it wasn't book learning yeah it was observation it was osmosis it was doctors I sat in on medical clinics you know that you would never ever get to do here no nope. you know and everyone was so happy
1: to have me <laughs> just... what an incredible way to learn and better yeah. yourself and in the your own profession yeah absolutely and so the thing was that
0: the confidence that that gave me I've always been someone you know like I said I've always wanted to do it my own way you know my mum always said you can you would never listen I'd never listen I'd never want to be told I had to make my own mistakes and I had to learn my own lessons yeah and being in Africa was I just was so allowed to do that no one said you can't do it they were just like, please come, please, please be here, please, please yeah. yeah, and because I was a herbalist, a medical herbalist, they were just like, this is amazing, you know, like, your level of education is really beneficial to us, yeah, and so I, what I was in, that time that I was in Tanzania on my research trip, I emailed Anamed, and I just said to them, I want to work for you, I'm a herbalist, um, i'm in east africa at the moment and keith who's now a really good friend of mine he answered the email and he was just like this is fantastic yes we're going to zimbabwe next year do you want to come on a three-week teaching trip and i was like yes <laughs> so the following year i went to zimbabwe with him for three weeks and started teaching okay. and i was like I don't really know anything and he was like but you've you've trained to be a herbalist the the amount you do know is much more than you think yeah and it was cool because we were working with traditional healers and doctors together okay. so it's about taking the best of both worlds yeah and putting them together to serve the patient better so the patient is always at the center the people are always at the center yeah and using skills from both sets both cultures would really help people and so that particular trip in Zimbabwe was unbelievable like I just learned so much I learned how to make stuff I understood about physiology much more from a human perspective yeah I could see how mental health problems were playing a role in physical health yeah and I just felt invigorated like I was inspired I was motivated I was yeah it was just you know everyone that I've ever looked up to or felt inspired by someone who's done it for themselves and who said like I just did it yeah you know and that was me that I was able to have that experience and so my clinical practice here came was coming back to Edinburgh like in Edinburgh for a few months in Africa for a few months and was kind of going backwards and forwards like that. And my practice in Edinburgh was getting better because of my experience in Africa and Africa got under my skin so much, you know, the people, the warmth of the people, their willingness to share, their inclusivity, you know, their hospitality, their openness, you know, someone you'd meet someone, you'd just be having a cup of tea and you just start talking to someone next to you, you know. Oh, hi. They'd be like, oh, I went to Edinburgh University. You'd be like, sorry, what? <laughs> yeah. I'm now working for the Ministry of Health or such and such. And you'd be like, oh, that's cool. Yeah. I'm a herbalist, blah, blah, blah. They'd be like, oh, I think you should meet someone. Do you want to come now and meet them? And you'd be like, yeah, okay. Yeah, I like that. That's cool. And they just take you and meet, yeah. meet the person. And they'd be like, oh, we've got a farm. Do you want to come to our farm? And so it was so easy to network and to meet people. And, of course, like the more people you meet, the more you're exposed to different stuff, the more you learn. People wanted to share information. And I think it was really to my advantage, that again, that I was a qualified herbalist because they really respected that. Because in Africa, herbal medicine or plant-based medicine is really the primary form of medicine. So there was no conversion. Okay. Everyone knew what a herbalist was, everybody respected a herbalist. I was a doctor, they called me Dr. Lucy because that was what is culturally normal for them. So, you just having those barriers broken down automatically makes it loads easier. And so, then I was, yeah, I started talking to a lot of women. I love stories. I love talking, yes. as you well know. No, I, love it. <laughs> I, love I love it, and I love stories. And I always want—I'm always fascinated by people. What's your story? What's going on with you? What's yeah. the background? What's you know? Tell me everything. And so, while we were in Zimbabwe and other countries, I started talking to women. What problems do you have? You know, women like to talk anyway, oh, don't they? Globally, of course. And because animed had only ever had men as teachers, I was the first woman to have taught with them, that they started discovering that actually loads of women's health was being positively affected by herbs, like gynecological issues, menstrual issues, fertility issues, menopausal issues, and they were just like, wow, all this info we've been missing for all this time and i was sharing this information freely with keith you know oh do you know that they use this for treating vaginal dryness or yeah. do you and he was just like i didn't know i didn't know that so i started writing it all down you know i'm a scientist i've got a scientist background yeah, yeah. and so naturally for me i write it down yeah so i started writing loads of information down and then i realized that what i was doing is something called ethnobotany someone had said to me actually do you know that's ethnobotany and I was like ethno what and it's a form of anthropology okay. it's like a subsect of anthropology and we know anthropology is the study of humans yes and culture yeah well ethnobotany is the study of the relationship between plants and people right and if you think rationally about it Human beings have always depended on plants. We use it for food, we use it for housing, we use it for clothing, we use it for transport, canoes yeah. made of trees. Yeah. Breathing. Breathe all of everything. these things <laughs> medicine, you know, it wasn't just limited to medicine and food. There yeah. was lots there's lots of other things. And I thought, hmm, this could be really interesting. So I decided, I kind of looked into ethnobotany. I started reading loads of books by academics on ethnobotany and I just loved it I just was like this is me yeah you know I knew that training as a herbalist I didn't really I wasn't keen on being a clinical practitioner because that didn't really suit me I didn't think at that time but the ethnobotany the stories of people and how plants were useful in their lives that really interested me I started reading loads of ethnobotany and then I realized another aha moment that you could train to be an ethnobotanist. as a nice. master's degree program and there's only two places in the world that you can study ethnobotany. One's Hawaii okay. and the other one is Kent. Okay. Well, Hawaii wasn't really feasible, <laughs> as, nice, as nice as that sounds, you know, because I was still traveling a lot to Africa. Yeah. I really, That was a really big focus for me. And so I decided to do a master's degree in Kent. And this time around, my mum and dad were really happy. Okay, <laughs> you know, because okay. they were like, more qualifications. You know, you've got master's degree education. That's going to be a lot of kudos for okay. you. And so I did my master's degree with a focus on East African medicinal plants. Yep. So I did my master's degree in Kent 2012 to 2013. And that was really cool. I really enjoyed it because not only you know, I already had my qualification as a herbalist, or so is it a great advantage yes. to most people that? You know, we did training on medicinal plants and I was telling the teacher, actually you've got that wrong. Brilliant. <laughs> or actually there's this and this as well because they they're academics, they're not herbalists. Yes. Yeah. They're right? not put it into practice. So they're not put it into practice. So that was a really awesome time with all my focus just going on to doing my field research in East Africa. So then I met quite a few people who had already been working in East Africa in academia with plants and people. And ethnobotany was really like the thing that got me because it combined this love of people and stories and plants. So it's like my experience with the Maori people, it kind of travelled forward through that. So I went to East Africa, and I'd already been in East Africa a lot, so it was very familiar to me. I'd got a good network of people. It was easy for me to be there. I spent three, I spent four months, actually. We were only meant to go and do our field research for six weeks. Okay. And I was like, ha, I'm not doing that. <laughs> <laughs> I yeah, I went for four months. And um, I did my field research, and my field research was about understanding what factors influence transmission of knowledge about medicinal plants in ethnic minority groups. And that was amazing doing that because I learned a lot about traditional practices, medicine practices. And that obviously was a great balance to my academic training because it was much, it's an oral tradition. There's no books, you know, you learn by doing. So it was, it was really wonderful. Yeah. And during that time, I had decided, do you know what? I want to live in East Africa. And I was already like, I'm so far was deep in this yeah. that I want to be here. And I had come across, by chance, by, by the look, like destiny, I don't know, whatever you call it, a permaculture training course. And permaculture is permanent agriculture so it's really taking a sustainable way of looking at everything for it's less work more productivity okay which is cool because now like as a business person that's what I'm all about like Brilliant. Brilliant. <laughs> working more efficiently yeah. to get more out and so I wrote to these people you know you can see I've been quite bold in my life that I've just asked things
1: of people at the time but look, that it what felt it, but right. look at your journey I know Had you not done that like, would you have gone to these places? And...
0: I don't know what drove me to
1: do but that. though. Because it because was your purpose. Yeah, it was just so calling. intuitive. Yeah. Like, I didn't
0: contemplate it. Yeah. I just would like, do just it. You just
1: knew that's the next thing
0: Yeah. And so I did this permaculture training. You know, I had no money. You know, I was in my 20s. You know, my mum and dad were always just like, oh, my word, Lucy, like, how do you do it? Because I'd just be winging it by the seat of my pants, skint you know blagging it whatever you call it and which is what all entrepreneurs say yeah right (laughs) so um I contacted the organization who were running the permaculture course and I said to them listen I don't have any money but I'll write an article for you I didn't have any experience writing but I thought how hard can it be And there was a magazine, there's an international magazine called the the Permaculture Magazine. And I just said, I'll write you an article for them. And they were like, that would be great because it would be so much exposure and you're coming at it from, you know, foot in two worlds. And they accepted. They were like, "Okay, we'll give you a severely subsidised rate if you write this article. And it, what was really cool was because I was writing this article, it gave me permission to interview everybody. Yeah. So I was like satisfying my own need for story
1: yeah.
0: while getting this training. And the organisation that did the permaculture training were called Food, Water, Shelter. They're an Australian charity who were supporting women, vulnerable women, through permaculture so they had income-generating activities in order to support themselves. Okay. So I was like, maybe, maybe I could get a job with them. Like maybe I could intern with them or volunteer with them, or you know that that could be a way in. It's actually really hard to get into the job market in another country oh, without crazy. having good connections. You know, yeah. I was no one. Nobody knew me. I didn't have family. I didn't have any historical context there. I wasn't an academic. You know, so I just thought maybe that'll work. So I came back, I lived at my mum and dad's house while I wrote up my thesis. Yeah. Um just as a little aside, like my research assistant who helped me do my field work because we were working in their language, we were working in Kiswahili, so I needed a local person to translate. Well, I developed a bit of an interest in this guy. Okay. It <laughs> was a bit like, hmm. <laughs> mm. And so there was like a bit of a thing with him. Okay. You know, so there was like another reason to be back in Africa because at that time I was like, you know, I want to be with him. Yep. Yeah. Even though that's completely unethical, you know, as a researcher, you're
1: never meant to do that. Listen, it happens all the time. I know, but, like, do you know what? It's all about connection, isn't yeah. it? And you can't, well, you can't <laughs> stop something if there's something there. I'm yeah, sure.
0: exactly. And so I wrote up my thesis, um, you know, just blitzed through that, and I applied to Food, Water, Shelter for an internship, you know, because that was, like, my thought, that yeah. I'll apply for them. That'll get me into Tanzania. I'll be there for a period of time. So I applied to them, they interviewed me, and they were like, God, this is amazing, you know, like, your skill set, you're just the kind of person we want to have working for us, blah, blah, blah. So I waited a little bit of time. They got back to me and they were like, unfortunately, you're unsuccessful as an intern. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, no, what now? And they were like, but we would like to offer you the project manager's job. (laughs) and I was just like sorry what and they're like well you are way overqualified to do a volunteer position and we couldn't pay you because that's not what we do with volunteers but we need a project manager we need a a British and English speaking project manager we've got a Tanzanian project manager but we want you to to co-work with that person and I was just like um <laughs> <laughs> wow. you know I have no project management experience and they were like yeah but look at all these other skills you've got Yeah. and my mum and dad and all my friends were just like do it because you will never get another opportunity like this like in Britain I could never have gone with the qualifications and the experience that I had into a project management position people study project management oh, of course right? and of course so I was just like okay
1: Okay,
0: (laughs) I'm I'm just going to do it and I'm not joking. I was so anxious because I didn't, you know, I didn't know what, I I didn't know, I was just like, I don't know how to do this job and my mum and dad were just like, Lucy, you can do it. Of anybody, you can do it. Of course. You know, just do it. And so I basically like packed up all my life in the UK and moved to Tanzania. How long were you there for? So my job started... My job started in September 2012. So I moved there, I started this job and it was absolutely insane. We managed, we were employing 35 people. We had multiple projects going on, land-based projects. We were running international permaculture training of which I was responsible for organising every single aspect of. I was managing budgets, I was doing accountancy, we had this amazing accountant, an Australian guy called Sean, who I'm still friends with now. And after about two months of being there, he said to me, I'm I'm gone, I'm done. There's, there's bad stuff going on in the organisation. I'm not into it. And I was like, but you can't leave because we've got no accountant. The one position that was really integral to the organisation was the accountant. Yeah. You know, for transparency, for applying for funding, all of those things we really needed him. And he was just like, well you have to do it and I was like uh <laughs> I can't do it You're like, like I'm a project manager <laughs> <laughs> yeah don't you tell me what to do <laughs> and he just trained me and the board members so we had an Australian board so they kind of micromanaged right and the board were just like Lucy We're never going to get to employ someone quickly. You know, it takes months and months to find someone suitable. You're just going to have to do it. And I was just like, holy smoke. Maths was never my strongest, right? But talk about sink or swim. So Sean taught me how to use QuickBooks, which is an accountancy software. He taught me everything about the running of the project in terms of finances. And I just did it. Wow. And I, like, worked literally 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Like, I just had to do it. There was no option. And do you know what? Looking back now, that's so helpful for me now as an entrepreneur because having been in such an intense situation with finance yeah. at the centre of that, now as a business person, of course, that's... Or your
1: your set is yeah. just massively increased from yeah, doing that. Yeah,
0: that's it. And I would... and. so September I started my job you know I went back to see this guy his name's Musa went back you know was with him and in October I found out I was
1: pregnant wow (laughs) wow
0: so I was I'd been at my job six weeks okay and I found myself to be pregnant and I really wanted to have a baby I was really ready for that but things did not work out with Musa at
1: all. Like, oh, I'm sorry
0: to hear that. Yeah, he, he, yeah, it just didn't work out, and he decided that he didn't want to be with me. Right. So here I was in Africa, six weeks into a new job, doing this intense work, and I was pregnant and by myself. Oh. And I was just like, "Well, I either leave or I continue." Okay. And I was just like, I am not going to let this not do what not let me do what I want to do. Yeah. And I thought, how hard can it be? How hard can it be being pregnant? Like, can't be that hard. <laughs> like all these African women, you know, they're like physically working incredibly hard in the field. Yeah. Pregnant, carrying babies, breastfeeding. You know, the women do so much work Yeah. as all women globally do. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to do it. I'm gonna do it I don't care do it yes, <laughs> yes and so I did and I didn't tell anybody till I was like four months pregnant because okay. I just didn't I didn't know how it was going to go down yeah. I didn't know what people would think and I had told uh, Moody who is my co-manager I told him quite early on I told him about 14 weeks and he was just like well of course you're going to have a baby that's your right as a woman."
1: nice I like
0: that and I was like oh okay okay but what about this and he was like don't worry about that I was like what about Musa don't worry about him you don't need him you know you'll be fine I'm here for you and uh I told my mum and dad and my mum and dad were like my mum was a bit heartbroken I think I didn't expect to be a single you know a single woman you know you could say like of my backgrounds being in a foreign country, being pregnant by myself. Yeah. You know, my mum was a bit equally as I was. But my dad was just like, well, you're 31. Now's the time. Good. And he was like, you can do it. Yeah. And I was like, okay. (laughs) And one of the managers came over from Australia and I told her and she was so happy. She was so happy and she was so supportive And she just said, it's totally fine. We'll just work it out. When do you want to go home? And I was like, well, I guess I'll go home like 31 weeks. She was like, fine, you go home. How much time do you want off? And I was like, "Mm, like two months. And she was like, no, why don't you take four? And I was like, nah, it can't be that hard. Don't worry about it. I'll just have the baby, then come back. And she was like, okay. (laughs) She said, you know, you can just work at the pace you want to. You can have the baby. You know, they just do whatever you want to do. Yeah. And so that's what I did. So I came back to the UK in the June. Imani was born in the August. And, I mean, I was a bit of a wreck at okay. that time. Yeah. Because being a project manager and being pregnant, like, I just ignored my pregnancy. Yeah. I just ploughed on. And we worked incredibly hard because it was there was so much to do you know, a lot of responsibility. And also, I think because I was really upset about being in a broken relationship, yeah, my way of coping was working.
1: Yeah, and forgetting about it.
0: Yeah, you know, I was a bit like, screw you, I'm going to work, I've got this, this is the thing that I can hold on to. Unfortunately, my health was really bad. I got kidney stones during my pregnancy. And I was really poorly. But I've got a strong constitution. I think yeah. that that is the thing that I will always be grateful for okay. because that was what carried me through. And I was ignoring myself a lot. I was just like, I've just got to get this job done. My parents were like, you know, you've got an obligation, you've got a responsibility, you're the project manager.
1: Yeah.
0: My dad, my mum and dad have a very strong work ethic. They're very professional people. Yeah. Like you don't let people down, okay. you don't change things, you just do it no matter what. Which of course isn't great, but there was helpful parts of that. So Imani was born and I went back to Tanzania when she was ten weeks old. Wow. So I went back with this little ten week old baby. Um i just about like at eight weeks I'd kind of got the hang of breastfeeding. Yep. So she was exclusively breastfed. She just I thought, do you know what? She'll just live in the sling. If she's with me, if my boobs are close to her, that's all she needs. Yeah. So I did that okay and so I went back to work um september 2013 full tilt yeah. just went straight back in it but what was really cool about being in east africa was that nobody batted an eyelid at the fact that i had a baby with me yeah everybody was really happy and What was really important about that was that people respected me much more because I'd become a mother. Okay. So in terms of, like, status as a woman, I had started to feel respected by people before I was just basically a girl. Yeah. Now I had a baby, they were like, okay, mama. They call you mama. Everybody calls you mama. And they just were like, okay, mama. You know, and I could feel that difference. Yeah, and that was so imp- Like, I don't realize what an impact that had on me until you look back. Yeah, but that confidence that that gave me, being a mum and working a job at the same time, and the way that people treated me was so good for me. Yeah, you know, my purpose changed because Imani was very important to me. Obviously, being my daughter, you know, but it gave me a new sense of purpose and that was really great for me unfortunately when I came back with Imani it was like someone had lifted a veil from across my eyes because I saw things totally differently I was seeing things through the eyes of a mum and through a different woman I'd been through a process yeah you know and so I started to see like all the stuff that was wrong with the organisation. There was money being embezzled out of the Mm organisation by the manager, by the guy who was like the closest to me. I called him out on it and the organisation were like, this just cannot be true. And several other members of staff were like, it is, this is what's happening. This is reality. We've been trying to say something for ages, but we can't. And so it came to light that there was lots of money being embezzled out of the organisation and being used inappropriately. And <laughs> I had to sack Moody. Oh, wow. So I had to go through that. Being in lawyer's office is having conversations with people. Another level of having to go through something very intense while having a baby with me as well and being a mum, being yeah. a single mum. But... And then I decided, you know, I've kind of had enough of this now. That was you, done. Like, I was at an absolute wreck. Like, my body, I was skeletal. Like, I was so thin. I just had massive big milky boobs. Yeah. <laughs> my mental health was very poor. My physical health was suffering. I just had really pushed it literally as far as I could. And my dad had to have a triple heart bypass surgery. They'd found he'd had okay. heart problems. And that was like, do you know what? You're going home. I'm going home. And I quit my job. And the board of governors were just like, you can't leave. And I was like, I can't stay. Yeah. You know, they, they'd they promised me stuff like, we're going to improve your housing. I'd, I was living in accommodation that had no indoor toilets.
1: Oh, wow. I had no
0: running water. I had no hot water
1: you have got a baby.
0: I had a baby. We had electricity was very very intermittent. So like with money, like I had to go outside, boil water in an outside kitchen, bring it back in a bucket, and bathe her in a baby bath. Okay. Like that was my life. That's how you did it. If I needed the toilet in the night time, or I had a you tummy upset. I had to I had to go outside yeah. to the outside compost toilets and use those. So my life as a new mum
1: was... It's ten times harder. Was, a million times harder.
0: I had no sitting room. I had no TV. I had no soft finishing. So imagine how it felt when I came back to the UK. I mm. felt like a
1: queen. Yeah, like luxury.
0: Oh, my word. And do you know what that gave me was gratitude yeah. and appreciation of stuff. Like, we're so lucky. The life that we have here you know, yeah. in the UK, Wi-Fi, Wi-Fi, <laughs>
1: revolutionary,
0: you know, I had like internet, I couldn't stop taking showers or being in the bath because yeah. it was just like, oh, it was amazing, you yeah. know, and I, I think I'd lived most
1: of my life just taking that for granted as we do. Well, if you've not had a comparable experience living somewhere else where you've got none of it, yeah, then That's probably what most people in the UK are doing. Yeah.
0: Yeah, so coming back to the UK,
1: you know, my health was really,
0: really bad. I was, my mental health was really terrible. I went back to live with my mum and dad and it was really stressful for them because my dad was obviously in recovery from heart surgery. And I don't know if you've had any experience with people recovering from heart surgery, but it really impacts on your mental health as well. Okay. So my dad, who's this very strong um, man, running his own business, you know, boss of his life, yep. basically, is now incapacitated.
1: That's so hard.
0: You know, and it was... And my dad had always been, like, the leader in our family. Yeah. You know, even though my mum and dad worked together as a pair, they were a real team. Um, Yeah, my dad was basically, like, a broken man, and it was really hard for my mum. So my mum had, like, two broken people to look after and had a really bad experience with my mum and dad, and they ended up kicking me out. Okay. So, I mean, that is not a nice thing to talk about and... You know, there's we're we're great. It's great now. It yes. was something that happens that we didn't want to happen, but it did. Yeah. But actually, do you know what? That was one of the best things that could have happened to me because okay. it was at that point that I knew I needed to sort my shit out. You know, I was really suffering. I felt very sorry for myself. You know, a lot of that, what have I done? What have I just spent the past five years doing? What a waste of time. My poor baby, you know, Imani was one at that point. You know, just feeling horribly guilty as a mom, ashamed, embarrassed. I had nothing. I had no money. Had this terrible fallout with my mom and dad. They kicked me out. And my sister was living in Glasgow. My sister Rachel was living in Glasgow. And she said to me, just come to Glasgow. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And I was like... I'll do that. So I just, in the November, I moved up to Glasgow and blessed my sister. She had a one-bedroom flat, and she just, like, made me and Manny so welcome. We slept in her sitting room. She made her sitting room into a bedroom, and she was just like, you've got to get yourself together. Yeah. Like, you've got to sort yourself out. Yeah. You know, which is really hard when you feel really crap. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I had a baby that would breastfeed all night long.
1: You know, I just shattered, totally
0: shattered, totally run down. You know, felt really bad about my life. And it was Rachel and my friend Joe, my best friend Joe, who were just so supportive of me. And they just kept saying, it's okay. You know, we know you're going to we know you're going to sort it out. We know you're going to, you know, look at everything that you've got. And of course, when you're in a really bad place with your mental health, it's really hard to have perspective on what you do have. Yeah, I still really appreciated living in the Western world and all of those kind of things. So I was trying. My sister said, right, let's find a two bedroom flat to live in. We moved into a two-bedroom flat. Totally couldn't afford it. You know, we were just scraping money together. You know, we yeah. had to get like, I think a grand and a half together for the deposit. And I was just like, well, where are we gonna get? You know, we yeah, were no. we were like fighting over a tenner for food. <laughs> you know, she was teach. She's an artist, and she was teaching at an art college. I was on uh, working tax credits, as they were at the time. We just managed to scrape it together. Yeah. You know, and Rachel just kept saying to me, we've got to better ourselves because when we do that, we'll then get better in our yes. lives. I was just like, oh. okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so we moved into this two-bedroom flat, which was great. Things kind of started to shift. But my mental health took a real dive. And I was feeling quite suicidal. Like, oh I started to realise that before I had my period, my mood would really dip. Okay. And because Imani was still breastfeeding so much, I was just, I was very drained. Yeah. And it occurred to me, I had that moment where I realised I was having suicidal thoughts. And I was just like, oh my, it was so frightening. Yeah. I was just like, okay, I cannot do this. Like this week call. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, I've got this baby, like I, I just can't do mm-hmm. this and so I was speaking to friends, you know, it was so hard for me to say to people that that's where my health was at because mm-hmm. I felt like I had done that. Okay. Because of what I'd been through, I I was responsible for getting myself into that situation. I hadn't looked after myself. I pushed myself very hard. I was just like, I can do it. You know, it's not that hard having a baby. All these women complaining about babies, you know, <laughs> they've no idea. So, actually, the lessons that I learned from going through the hardest times were my best teacher. Okay. And it was an acupuncturist through another herbalist friend of mine, Claire. And she said, You've got to go and see her. And I found I remember being on Bayers Road in the pouring rain, Imani was asleep in the buggy you know the babies are all cozy aren't they with their with the rain cover on yeah. blankets and new yeah. life cozy clothes yeah, and no there's worries. me soaking wet <laughs> feeling like total rubbish <laughs> and speak phoning this acupuncturist and just crying on the phone to her you know I could hardly speak because i was just you know <laughs> and i just told her everything and she and i said listen i've got no money and she said just come Just come because I can help you. Okay. And so I started seeing this acupuncturist called Rona uh, Goldsworthy. And through her, like I went to see her every week, you know, I shared so much with her. She would listen to me. I had a great personal, I got on Mm -hmm. with her, which is what's so important about having a therapeutic relationship with somebody. And she listened and she cared. And I took Imani with me. You know, she was like, don't worry, just, just come. I saw her every week, and I was seeing a herbalist at the time called Daisy May, who's a very well-known herbalist in Glasgow. She was helping me, and it was through other people that they that my health started to get better. My PMS started to resolve. my My mum and dad, the relationship with my mum and dad got better. We started talking about stuff. We worked things out. So that was like November, November 2014 till like February 2015. I really needed some money. I had nothing. I really needed some money. And through university, I'd always cleaned. I'd done private cleaning for people because it was great money and it was easy. You could do it on your own schedule. And I was like, I'm just going to start cleaning again. Mm -hmm. And my sister was like, Lucy, you've got a master's degree. (laughs) You can't clean but I couldn't get a job mm-hmm. I just and I couldn't, I didn't want to be a practitioner because I didn't felt feel like it was fair because mm-hmm. my health was so poor oh, I felt like a bit of an imposter yeah. you know, so I decided just to do cleaning and it was always the balance between childcare and making money
1: mm-hmm.
0: and it was still really tough, I'd found a child minder for Imani and Kelvin Dale and I would walk <laughs> It, I was walking four hours a day because it was two hours walk there and two hours walk back, I didn't even have any money for the bus, like no. I had no money, mm-hmm. I couldn't you know, you might think, you know, it's only a few quid, but that those few quids was what I was spending on food or nappies yeah. and so I was walking four hours a day took money up to the childminder, come back, do a few hours cleaning, go back again to get her, but that Gave me like enough money, you know, just a little Mm -hmm. bit of money. The exercise was also really good for me in terms of my mental health. And I remember speaking to my herbalist Daisy on the phone, and she said to me, Do you know what? You're going to look back on this, and this is going to be your greatest therapy because it was in nature again. Yeah, I was in nature, I was walking by the river, I used to walk up the River Kelvin. Mm -hmm to get to the childminder's house and she said you know you are going to be learning through this process and I was just like whatever you know people tell you that stuff and you don't believe it but it was and then my sister started saying to me and Joe started saying to me you've got to get back into practice you've just got to do this you can make so much more money but again it was like the confidence thing and the mental health being poor so I said right what I'm going to do is that In April, in April, I will Mm -hmm. commit to doing that, getting back into practice. And so what I'm going to do between February and April, I'm going to work really hard. I'm going to make as much money, cash money as I could, just to get get going a bit more. Imani would feel better being at the childminder. And so in April, I just took this massive leap of faith, got in touch with Neal's Yard Remedies and said to them, I'm a clinical practitioner, I want to rent some space from you. And they were like, fine, great, there we go. I was like, what am I going to do now? No clients, no client base, no connections in Glasgow, nothing. So this is April 2015. And the manager of Neil's Yard Remedies at that time is a lady called Laurie Heaps. And she was wonderful. And she saw in me, I shared a lot with her. As soon as I started, I just said to her, look, this is a situation that I'm in. And... And I really need your help. And she said, you know, I can really see that you're a grafter. And she said, there's no one else in here who is a single working mum. She said, "Uh, who's the, you know, primary breadwinner. And she was just like, I'm going to help you. You know, and I just was like, I'm going to work so hard for you. And she was like, you better not let me down. (laughs) (laughs) And I was just like, don't worry, I won't. And... That was, like, the time that I really... You know, I had to feed Imani. I had to look after Imani. I had to make it work for her and for me. I'd been through all these health problems. I'd managed to get back to better health. I was still a bit shonky, Mm -hmm. you know, but I was like, it's enough. Yeah. You know, everyone starts it by winging it a little bit, don't they? Of course. And so... Yeah, I just I just started doing it. And Laurie was so supportive and help helpful. And she just she knew I was going to work hard. And she really appreciated that. And so she started getting me more and more clients. And I started putting myself out there. And not long after that, I really decided that I needed to do some business training because didn't feel like I had much business acumen okay so I started doing coaching courses online coaching courses and I did this fantastic coaching course with this guy called Mark Walsh and that was about purpose business with purpose so you had to sort out your own stuff in order to have a successful business and that just aligned with me so much that I did it and it was so hard it was six months and it was brutal okay like it was totally brutal I was paying for it I had still had next to no money because everything that I earned paid my rent um paid the course you know costs of running a business but I did it and that doing that coaching course really really sent me on my journey into how could I be a herbalist with values yep and make money and have a successful practice because there aren't that many it's really common in like the natural health world that it's assumed you won't have money okay on the same level as like corporate okay like you you're a nice person you have issues with money you're not going to ask for money you don't deserve money but the reality is is that like me personally i'm very well qualified I've got as I've just told you I've got a ton of experience you know I've got 10 years experience of being in the field experience you know I've been through a deep personal journey myself in terms of my health and as a woman and as a mother yeah and I just started to realize like do you know what I've got so much to give like I can I can really help people And so I started just being more business minded about business and I had so many issues with money and the only choice was that I either kept the issues with money or I did something about it. That was, that's always been me. Yeah. You've got two choices. You either do it or you don't do it. Yeah. And that was it. And so then 2016, like my business really started to flourish. So 2016. 15, 16, 17. So my first tax year was 15 to 16. So 2015, 16 to 2017, 18, my business went from a profit of minus 1,000 pounds in the first year. And in the third year, my business turned over 54,000 pounds. Wow, that's brilliant. Amazing. So, So I just... You know, I could see that it was possible, I just yeah. didn't know how. Yeah. And I start like that's how I met you, because I started doing networking yeah. and I started doing vlogging and I started just getting the word of herbal medicine and me as a person out there. Like yes. I just had to do it. You know, I did it wasn't comfortable or felt nice or always easy yeah. for me. I just but you did it. I just did it and You know, then last year I launched a product range as well. My sister, again, (laughs) she's got a lot to answer for, my sister, (laughs) said to me, you've got to have another source of income. You can't, as a practitioner, you can only make money through face-to-face consultation. So the options are you raise your prices and that's it. So you can raise your prices, but, you know, that's not always a way, a solution. And so I was looking at diversifying my income streams in order to make my business more successful because that is what secures your business. You have to have multiple income streams in order to have security in business. I'm self-employed, right? So if ever I had to be off sick, I wouldn't make money. If I wanted to take a holiday, I wouldn't make money. And I just was like, I've got to have another way. I can't be, you know, I've been through all of that. I can't ever be in that situation again. You know, I can't do that. And I wanted to be such a good role model for Imani. Yeah. You know, a successful woman, someone who is caring, compassionate. You know, so you didn't, You, in order to be successful in business, you don't have to be a bitch. ruthless, Ruthless. No. You know, walking over people. That just doesn't work with me. No. So I kind of started thinking like, well, you can have a bit of both. Yes. You can be a lovely person, and you can be kind and compassionate, but you can have strong boundaries. Yeah. And you can decide what's okay and not okay for you. And you can make money, you know. So then it was about mindset shift, you know, okay. really shifting my mindset. And it's still something that I have to work on all the time. But launched the products last year. So I've got a range of um, loose organic herbal teas, and I do some skincare stuff, and I do tinctures, which is liquid medicine, Okay. and I started doing public events, okay, because I really wanted, so many people were saying, oh, I don't want to take chemicals, but I don't know what else to take, yes, and I was like, well, that's me,
1: yeah, but we spoke about this before the podcast, there's been a real shift in people's attitudes towards medicine, I think, and I think it's only going to get stronger, and it's definitely more towards the natural more towards like less pharmaceutical and more like what can we be doing like prevention and so you are the ideal business brand owner yeah to kind of service that and also life. inside
0: of that that people are so much more aware of mental health and the impacts of that that yeah. people know it's not just a physical health problem no. like if you've got a skin issue it's not just about the skin issue; mm-hmm. it's about the stress yes. that drives the skin issue. So, how can doctors help sort out your stress? Yes, they can. They can put you on antidepressants, but so many people don't want to do that, and they also know intuitively inside of themselves, as we all know, that that is not the solution. No, and you know, self care. This word, self care is now so prevalent Mm -hmm. you know everybody's talking about it you have to look after yourself yep in order to look after everybody else and you know as a mum if you don't look after yourself everybody else suffers yeah because you end up being bitch mum or shouty
1: mum yep or Or angry mum or not capable because you're so unwell
0: or Or not capable. And then I just like, as a woman and as someone who has quite strong political and feminist values, like we have an obligation to look after ourselves because the guilt and the shame that you feel as a woman, never mind as a mother, is so strong that the way to offset that is by looking after yourself and having autonomy. Mm -hmm. And so, what's different about how I practice is that. I'm not into just giving you a remedy.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I want you to learn about you.
1: Okay.
0: I want you to understand why you are the way that you are. In the same way that I've been through that on a mm-hmm. personal level, I had to do that the hard way. Okay, right? Right. And so with my experience and my expertise, and which is based in clinical, you know, it's clinical experience mm-hmm. that I can help you to understand why things are the way that they What's are. What's the root? Yeah, and why? How your mental health impacts on your physical health? Mm-hmm. Because when you know that and you understand that more, then you
1: have control. Mm-hmm. Because you can then choose. So it is, and of course it makes sense, and of course, but it's just not the way we've been brought up in a Western world to deal with an ailment. It's always you know fix the physical you are broken so fix it it's not
0: that straightforward right Um, because my mantra is like health is not the absence of disease mm -hmm. I am not a perfect human being my health isn't perfect yeah you know but I am doing exceptionally well like I accept the things that I can't fix and if I can't accept them then I'm going to change them and it's about having empowerment yes and feeling in control of your life that you can know what's good and bad for you and what works and doesn't work for you and the same with food
1: yeah
0: you know if you know like say for example dairy really aggravate it gives you diarrhea yeah why
1: would you eat it why would you continue to have it
0: And, like, I have those really frank conversations with patients all the time. Mm -hmm. Everybody knows what's not good for them, but they aren't yet brave enough to say no to it. Yeah, because you've been
1: programmed so much in one way that you think, oh, that might not be good. So I know that it's not good, but I'm going to continue because I've been programmed to believe. Yeah. So if someone comes to you then, Lucy, because obviously we were looking at your Instagram before the podcast, and you have done an absolute wonder treatment for a, a recent client who came to you with um, a skin condition in her hands. Yeah, eczema. Eczema yeah. in her hands. And you showed the before and after pictures on your Instagram and it's, like, literally amazing. It's, 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 it is. It is it's amazing. So what would be the process if someone's got a health ailment or you know something going on they're they're kind of scunnered with the you know the doctor like you said when your experience nothing was it wasn't getting rid of it it was just curing it at that time and what would be your process for a new a new patient if you like
0: yeah so the first thing that I'm going to say and a lot of people in business might not think that this is a good way forward but do you know what you have to find the right person for you Mm -hmm. okay so I'm not everybody's cup of tea. I'm not the right herbalist for everybody. And this is what I really want people to understand, that you have to put you at the centre.
1: Yeah.
0: I'm an exceptional herbalist, but it doesn't mean that I'm going to find the right solution for everybody because it's about us working together. It's mm-hmm. a collaborative thing. Yes. So what I would say, first of all, is like, check me out. Mm-hmm. Look at my Instagram. Look at my social media. Look at my website. Like. Yeah. Feel into your vibe, like, does that suit you? Is what I say what works with you? You know, it's like, yeah. we all have that good sense, isn't it? Like, I remember looking at the Glasgow Girls Club stuff and just being like, these are the kind of girls that I want to hang out with. Oh, nice. Right? That, that's what made me go to that meeting. Okay. Because and when I saw you you know, and listen to some of your stuff, I was like, yes, oh, I really you. want to meet her, and I want oh, to, and that's nice. what drove me to come, okay. and that's the same thing about seeing a herbalist, okay. that you have to find the right person, so check me out first of all, so um, check me out, see if you think that, see if you like what I have to say, and that's why being visible as a herbalist is so important to me, because there's so many amazing herbalists out there, mm-hmm. But nobody knows they exist because they don't market and advertise themselves because business, like entrepreneurship and like marketing and advertising is not a strength of herbalists. Okay. They're not people who want to shout about their successes or like have big egos. And I'm not saying that I have a big ego, but I feel really obliged to help promote all herbalists. Yeah. So look at that, look at the person, try and see if they've got a web presence or yeah. phone them. If you can't find anything on the internet, phone them and talk to them. If you think that I, if you want to see me or you want to explore that, like just get in touch with me, email me. Um, all the details are on my social media and on my website. Email me. And if you want to chat, we can chat. And if you don't, then we can just book you a consultation. So how it works is that you come to see me for a private consultation. Okay. At the moment, I'm practicing at Neils Yard Remedies, which is in Glasgow City Centre opposite yep. the uh, Modern Art Museum. Okay. And we'll book you in for a consultation. We'll have an hour to talk about your health hopefully we'll get as much information down in that time as possible and then and then we go from there and then what happens after that is that i will prescribe you medicine individual to you mm-hmm. that medicine could be a tea or it could be a tincture which is an alcoholic form of liquid medicine or several other things i'm also trained in nutrition mm-hmm. and we work with supplements mm-hmm. i do a lot of lifestyle coaching as okay. well so Meditation, mindfulness—all it has to all be included. It's, it's all part. It's a full of, package, It's a really full package. Yeah. It really is because you can't just give herbs to someone and tell them to take supplements if you're not addressing their psychological issues. And yeah. I'm not a counsellor, okay, yeah. but I have a lot of counselling skills. Yeah, but I might also I know who to point you in the right direction of yes you know that's been a big part of my business is working with other people mm-hmm. like osteopaths yeah for example um acupuncturists psychotherapists counsellors yeah emdr therapists trauma therapists like i've really worked hard like i've seen a lot of those people myself yeah but you felt a network but also, yeah,
1: also yeah because also
0: the thing is is that we 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 all have our strengths and weaknesses, you know, I know what I can do, but there might be other stuff
1: that you need that needs outsourcing to someone else. Yeah, That's incredible. I mean, and like listening to your story, like you said, there's a, there's such a straight line when you think about, you know, your experience, like doing your herbalism, herbalism, the fact that you did the ethnobotany and it's linking, you know, people and their plants. And then, because one of my questions was going to be, You know how do you know what herbs to mix together to make this well when you listen to your story (laughs) like you've had almost like you said 10 years longer working with plants knowing their benefits knowing the medicinal qualities putting it into practice in Mm. africa Mm. like you are literally you must have some of the most experience that any herbalist has got (laughs) Surely.
0: But also the thing is, is and this is what people don't know is that herbalists are very well trained people. Yeah. Like we study plants. Yeah. You know, and plant benefits have been known for millennia. You know that the the reason that we know that plants work is not only through science, through scientific research. I would say actually that's a very small minority, and it's a biased way of looking at plants, Mm -hmm. but experience is what teaches people you know as a practitioner you learn very quickly and I think that this is what I'm good at because of how I've pushed myself in my life is that I'm very good at deciding this isn't working for you let's change it you know mm-hmm. and I am not going to waste your time or your money or my time yeah with just like accepting things as they are so I'm very results based so everything is quantified like you tell me what you want doing
1: mm-hmm.
0: and how you want it to be and we put a measure on that and if I'm not seeing an improvement in that within a short space of time then I'm going to be really upfront with you and say these aren't the right herbs for you I need to switch things around mm-hmm. and I think that that's really helpful as a practitioner because do you know what I don't have the answers hmm and you don't have the answers. The doctor doesn't have the answer, but it's together, trial, isn't
1: it? And it's yeah.
0: And through and it's through communication that mm-hmm. that really comes out. Because do you know what, Laura? When people come for a consultation, they share so much of themselves. Mm-hmm. Like some of my patients have told me stuff they have never ever shared with another human being yeah not even their husbands or their wives or their kids or their mum or dads you know and the privilege that comes with that is immense and i take that really seriously because it's those little tiny bits of information that give you the key to knowing what herbs they need okay so it's the patient the patient is at the center of it all
1: that's why collaboration is so because if they don't give you the full picture Yeah, you're never maybe you maybe you would still anyway, but it's finding that route, isn't it?
0: Yeah. And it's about being it's about being good at asking questions. And Mm -hmm. I think that that's one of those soft skills that I've developed through my life because of this interest in people and stories. Mm -hmm. You know, like my boyfriend says to me, oh, my God, you ask so many questions. (laughs) But that's the thing, because if you don't ask questions, then how do you know? Yeah. A hundred percent. Because you, we can't assume we know. No, can we? Well, we, our brains assume we do, but we don't but we know. I know. And so it's about. I'm so into communication and and emotional intelligence. Like I've spent a lot of time studying that, investigating it, reflecting it in myself. Yeah. You know. So you develop it as a soft skill, as a practice, and I think like that's what a lot of entrepreneurs say. Like that. How have you? How have you gained success? It's just through doing it again and again and again and yeah. making mistakes and doing it again and getting it right and then being, you know, sometimes I get patients and I'm like, hold on, I remember this one person five years ago who had a similar thing and then I look yes. at their notes, oh, I gave them this, and then that could possibly inform what they need. Yeah. So you have to have a very flexible mind and be open to that. You can't assume that you just know what it is. no. And you know what you always know? I trust the patient that you know what you need. Mm -hmm. And I ask you, what do you want? How do you want things to be? How could this be better? If you don't believe that that's good enough, why do you believe that?
1: Mm -hmm. Right? And that's so powerful in itself. So powerful. Of course it is. It's amazing. I bet you that ever people leave, like the first, very first consultation, I bet you people leave like, wow.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's very eye-opening for a lot of people. And, you know, that's the thing. It's not just about the herbs. It's about the practitioner because the practitioner, like, as a herbalist, you have so much opportunity to help that person just Mm -hmm. through the consultation. Yeah. You know, so even before they've got the herbs, they're linking things together. They're looking back at stuff. They're Mm -hmm. putting pieces of the puzzle together. And just them being allowed to speak yeah openly and not you know not being told no no that's not right no yeah. you, you don't know. feel like that you don't feel like I that know, i know. how can you say that to somebody but <laughs> Pe- you know period pain i've got period pain oh well you're a woman so period pain is not normal
1: no you shouldn't
0: have period pain yeah you know and doctors just say well you're a
1: woman some paracetamol. it's just it's not good enough yeah it's
0: not it's good a enough whole,
1: it's a whole different way of looking at your health and yes. well-being isn't it yeah
0: and saying to people like you know i often say to people whatever you are feeling now is totally legitimate
1: mm-hmm.
0: and they're just like really yeah. Like yes. Rather than
1: berating themselves. Yeah, for it doesn't. A it way.
0: doesn't matter. Like whether you're the richest person. Yeah. You know, with the most beautiful family, it doesn't matter because mental and physical health problems affect everybody. What you have materially doesn't dictate how your health experience is going to be. Yeah. Unfortunately, but that's also beautiful because that makes us all humans. Yeah.
1: It makes us all more unified, doesn't it?
0: Yeah. You know, and as a woman, you really get that,
1: you know, yeah. because you
0: could be talk like you could be a multi-billionaire, you know, magnet of some empire, yeah. And you sit with her and you talk to her about her life and how things are, and she's just a human being. Yeah, she'll be saying the same things. She'll be saying the same, same themes will be coming up. My next. husband's doing my head in. Yeah, my kids won't listen to me. Yeah, I've- I'm not able to make the dinners you know, three nights a week. It's the same. Yeah. We're human beings having a human experience and whatever you are experiencing is valid and is worth being acknowledged.
1: Wow. (laughs) Wow, wow, wow. This is like, this is, you've got an amazing story. Thank you. You should write a book. (laughs) You maybe already have started, but you you should because you've got such a lovely link together From where you started to where you are now, there's just such a synergy. So on that note, how can people find you?
0: Yeah, so my uh, website address is www.lucybradley.co.uk and it's L-U-C-I-E. Okay. Or you can find me on Instagram at Lucy Bradley Herbalist. Yeah. Or you can just Google Lucy Bradley Herbalist and you should be able to find me.
1: Amazing, amazing. Well, Lucy, listen, thank you so much for that.
0: You're welcome. I think we
1: should definitely have another chat down the line we can get into the nitty gritty of the herbs
0: yeah sure but that was so so good and i'll speak to
1: you very soon thank
0: you so much